and welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 48, and it's another Dev Random. Me and Jay have fun with these episodes because we have so many topics and we're like, it's hard to bring this topic to be an entire episode. And we think there's a lot of value in all these little tools and tips we're going to talk about that, you know, help you optimize building your lab and little little tricks and software tools and things like that. So and we don't want to just call all of them, uh, you know, just one little thing or a bunch of miscellaneous. So we just chose Dev Random as kind of our theme. I think that's as long as everyone likes it, we're going to keep going with it. Yeah, every now and then we'll do one. Yeah, they're yeah. they're fun. Yeah, we just build up, uh, you know, the the process in the back end here is we're looking at tools and using them all the time and uh, breaking them down. I also thought about a dev update episode idea. So let us know what you think about this. And I didn't bring it up to Jay. He's learning right now. So I want to see his reaction to it. Uh, but some of the tools we want to revisit because there's new versions released and it's kind of like, it, the changes may be major, they may be minor be worth uh, grabbing a handful of products and doing dev update and revisiting them so you can learn about the base of the product in our previous episodes but the update uh you know recently xcpng has a new version out TrueNAS scale has been released since we talked about it so there's been changes um you know these are fun things it's fundamental of the product is the same but hey let's get excited about those new features because a lot of them are exciting so yep we might do some episodes like that now one thing we're going to do right away is thank a sponsor of the episode so we can jump in because we have a lot of random things to talk about and educate people on today. And this episode is sponsored by Linode. You, you guys are shocked, hoping another name would pop up maybe. I know someone said they wish we had a bigger variety, but Linode has been such a great sponsor. And so many of the tools align with this. It's easy to set up Linode. It's easy and DevOps friendly to build things and build on that platform. Um, we think they're just a good alignment for the people that listen to this because it will it's a product we use. And uh, don't tell Linode this, but we probably still use them even if they didn't sponsor the show because we were using them before they sponsored the show. If you didn't yeah. know, <laughs> they we just came to be in alignment. This is actually where all this stuff has been hosted pretty much since day one uh, because well, Jay's longer than me uh, has been a Linode user, uh, but I am as well. And the offer code we have to you is head over to linode.com slash home lab show if you want to get started. And lots of little things, tips and tools that we're going to be talking about are things you can run on Linode and test out on Linode. So if you don't want to run all these servers at home or for whatever restrictions, that's not plausible for you to do or possible for you to do, um, then yes, Lido is a great place to run them. Use our offer code to get started and uh, let's jump into this. Yeah, let's do that. So quite a few things here. So the, the first first several things are going to build on another one another. Um, it's basically about network organization. And I think that this is really important because, <sighs> yes, you know, I remember believe it or not, when you had like one computer in the house and you had like, you know, maybe one uh, Palm Pilot or whatever it was back then. So you really <laughs> didn't have much on your network. So have like a, a standard slash 24, I mean, was overkill. Like who's going to fill that? And then next thing you know, you have Roku's and you have video game systems that are online now. Um, every room has a television. You you might have a laptop in addition to a desktop, and everyone in your house has their own, depending on um, your status. But you know, at, at this point, it it gets to a point where you have a lot to maintain here. And you know, when I talk about Roku's and all this other stuff, unless you're using Plex, it really doesn't have anything to do with Home Lab. But it kind of does because if you're maintaining the network, there's a lot of overlap. And if you don't have a theme or a scheme, it can get kind of confusing. So. Um, 
like I said, these things are going to build on one another. And the first thing is an IP layout. Now, I'm not talking about subnetting your VLANs. If you have, you know, if you have VLANs implemented, awesome. But I do understand that a lot of people don't because they don't have managed switches that can do that. But they might just have a, you know, commercial off-the-shelf router or residential router or whatever, and they have a limited feature set. So if that's you, then you could come out, you can come up with a scheme. And this, there's no, there's not going to be any segment or segregation here, but it's just like a abstract layout type of thing. So you could have, for example, let's just say dot two through dot ten of your IP scheme could be like network devices. Then you could have, so I don't know, something like dot thirty through dot dot forty servers, dot fifty through dot sixty desktops. Then DHCP could be like the last fifty IP addresses. It really doesn't matter how you uh, carve it up. Um, there's a reason why you might want to do that. We'll get to it. But um, it kind of just makes everything make sense because then you have your servers one after another in your DCP table, your desktop laptops together, maybe your Internet of Things. Um, hopefully you have them segregated, but their IPs are fairly close. So depending on what the IP is, you have a reasonable idea what it should be. Um, if you have DNS, even better. But that's kind of where we start. I know that's not particularly exciting, but it kind of helps with what's going to come after this. And coming up with a naming scheme can be a struggle. Um, I used to do planets for a long time, yep. but then that that was early. That was twenty years ago, and it uh, quickly exceeded it. Then we went with some Star Trek names. Uh, I'm still a fan of naming servers after different Star Trek things. <laughs> and, yep. and it, it a... is, uh, it's hard to have a good scheme, but it's it's fun to set that up. The other thing that not to underestimate, I see people popping in about, you know, VLANs being a little bit difficult to manage. There are some challenges that come with it, but don't forget to, to what extent you can. You can frequently with many services, whether they're Windows or Linux, uh, lock them down to a access level like these devices have their own firewall so you can lock down the access levels to say not everything can talk to this device so even though you don't it's not like you're eliminating security by not segmenting your network you can still have a reasonable level of security because even for us with our specifically server more protected land where we have more critical things running in my network those systems don't talk to each other and specifically are not allowed they only have implicit allow rules on the firewall for what they yep. are allowed to talk to uh, it, it's one of those things just you know practicing principles of least privilege so even as a home lab user yes you can offer mitigations if things are on a network you may not be able to control that iot device but you can set rules frequently in the firewall of the, your device to say you know what don't talk to those it devices they may not be friendlies Exactly. And, and naming scheme is the second thing on the list, actually. The first was just all about having an IP layout. And the next thing that builds on top of that is having the naming scheme, like you mentioned. And I, you know, I've mentioned this several times on the YouTube channel that I use Final Fantasy VI Espers as my names uh, for my devices because that I'm obsessed with that game. I can't count how many times I've beaten it. You know, every character level 99, like multiple times since I was 13. So it, it became a natural fit to name everything out after Espers. But then it came, it came to a point where I had way too many devices, more than there's Espers in the game. So um, I, what I've done is I just continue to use that naming scheme for laptops. But everything else I have a different naming scheme for. And this is where you can get a little clever because... One way that you could do this is to make it such that if you, I don't know, export a list of your machines and alphabetize it in a spreadsheet, that they are able to be um, alphabetized if you come up with the right name, naming scheme. So, for example, it could be 
um, something hyphen something hyphen something. For example, net for your network devices, like if you have managed switches or access points or something like that, then just start the name with net and then hype. This is what I do, by the way. And then um, hyphen what type of device it is. So I, like, for example, a switch could be SW. So net hyphen SW hyphen, then the location, office, den, you know, kitchen, whatever. And then if there's more than one hyphen one hyphen two. So you might have like net hyphen AP for access point hyphen upstairs for the upstairs access point. Or if it's a um, storage server, it could be SRV for server hyphen NAS hyphen one, you know, something like that. So you just come up with your own naming scheme that makes sense. And I also have one IOT hyphen um, SP for smart plug or um, I can't remember what I have for bulb. Oh, SB for smart bulb is what I have. So basically that's just how you can name your devices. And then that leads right into the next thing which is DHCP reservations for everything. 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 Um, and it sounds like a lot of work. And it really is. Like, I'm not going to sugarcoat this, okay? So people might be wondering, why the heck would I want to go through that? I have like 20 IoT devices, five game systems, like six Rokus, a bunch of TVs. Like, who's got time for that? But once you actually get that implemented, though, it's so great. Because then if you have anything that comes in, with a you know non-reserved IP, for example, it's within your DCP um, you know realm. Then okay, that's a new device because if it wasn't a new device, I would have had a reservation for it. Downside is you have to remember to create a reservation if you buy a new device. But then it makes it really simple to see like a new device was added to your network because it's outside of that um, reservation. And the beauty of this is that you can turn on ARPWatch if you have access to that, like PFSense has this, where you can actually get an email alert that something was added to your network. And when you go to the DCP um, or the lease table in PFSense, you can sort it by most recent lease and your um, new devices are going to show up right at the top. So if somebody added a new device, not only is it going to have an IP address that's predictable, it's not a reservation, it's not going to have the right name. It, it you know, ARPWatch is going to email you. So if somebody's trying to circumvent, um, not that anyone would do this on your network, but if they're trying to, you know, add a new device or someone breaks in and adds a new device, you know. I mean, you've got all these layers of things that are going to let you know this is a new device. Either you haven't configured it yet or you weren't expecting it at all. Um, so all these things together kind of just make, it's, it's a lot of work at first, but once you get it done, oh, it's great. It is so great. It's it's also really helpful when you decide to start growing your network or want to rebuild it or resegment it with a different range. Um, you know, even myself, I took all the stuff that I was using in my studio, uh, different things that are IP connected and combined them with different things I have when I move my studio to the new location. And I just, you can do this in, Granted, PFSense makes it really easy, but there's other firewalls too that do this. When you have everything reserved, we just grab the reservations and you can do a selective restore to restore the reservations to a uh, DHCP and you're done. Like, great, we just restored all the reservations. So I didn't have to redo them. And as I brought them all over to a completely separate network, they all aligned right where I wanted them to be. And because the file's XML, I could just do a search and replace to line it up in the XML file as I needed with PFSense. Now, we also do this for uh, our businesses because we do a lot of camera deployments. And people ask, well, you know, how do you do this? And everything, and we have 
we have a couple of them that have like four or 500 cameras at some school networks. We have everything set in DHCP reservation tables. So this completely scales directly to business. And then anytime we replace cameras, um, if we have a, and we're, I'm bringing this up because this is literally what we're, my team is doing this morning is replacing cameras at the school. We pre-program their reservations with the new replacement cameras so they have the same IP address at the same location because of the way the camera system works. So it's going to pull that, you know, this IP address is expected to be in this particular hallway. We just swap out the reservations as we swap out the cameras. And it, it becomes really easy to do that way when you send something over to another network, it gets that IP address. You don't have to plug it in, find yep. it, you know, and everything else. Uh, we pre-program it, get it set up. So this scales out to a good proper way to do things across even these business platforms. Yeah, I'd ag I agree with that. So um, one of the best things about this is that no matter, and this is pretty much the same as what you're saying, but if you think about it, if you are reloading a server or a computer, let's just say you boot into a Linux live disk or something. Um, if you're using a static IP that you set manually by hand, and obviously the live image is not going to get that IP. It's just going to get a DCP IP. But if you have a DCP reservation, then that is that device is going to get the same IP no matter what. So live instance, you know, regardless of what it is, it always has the same IP. And it may not be super popular of an opinion, but I really can't stand static IPs that are done by hand. I just don't see why they're popular. I don't think it's a good idea. I think that it's a bad practice. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that you know, or actually I know that there's some devices out there that don't give you an option. Like like some apps, I can't remember which ones off the top of my head, will expect you to make a static IP and, and type everything in and won't even give you an option for a DACP because, you know, their mentality, this is a server. People should be using static IP. Right. But I disagree with that because not only is it better, I mean, it's just, I mean, it makes everything better. You go into your um, router or your firewall you'll see a list of all your devices and IPs. It's so easy to audit. I mean, if you think about it, um, you, you go in there, oh, I'm not using that device anymore. I'm not using that device anymore. You have one central location for all of your IPs. You know what they are. You don't have to go into a server to look at the um, you know, config file for it. You don't have to set the config file. You set everything to DCP and be done with it. I don't care if you're a business. I don't care if you're, you're not. Um, I just don't like static IPs. I think it's time to let that go and let DCP reservations, aka static leases, take over. And kind of added to that, one of the interesting things that happens, we have some of those different services that really want a static IP, but we still put a reservation in for it. And the reason yep. why, if we ever have to work on that machine or boot it from a live CD, it always gets the same IP address because it's based on the MAC address. So even when we start a reload or some process change on it that may break some settings or booting it from a live CD to do a recovery, um, the MAC address doesn't change. So it gets the same address uh that it would that it had to be assigned statically so even the static assigned ones i still put a reservation in that way in the off chance that server has to be rebuilt or something happens the interim of it not having a static ip means it still has the same ip yep and someone in the chat room I'm glad they mentioned this they mentioned how um there's some sort of uid or uuid for networking because most of the time it's the mac address that's presented to the dhcp server DCP server sees the MAC address. Oh yeah, that's Jay's laptop, so it gets this IP. But there's that's actually now the um, Etsy machine ID. It's slash Etsy slash machine hyphen ID. I know that Ubuntu server switched over to it. Debian may have. I haven't looked into how deep this goes yet, but I know that Ubuntu at least. And that is a whole new topic altogether. I, I do. I have covered it on another video. 
Um, I just can't remember which one, but your cloud knit video. That yep, it's in there too. I think I wrote a blog post at some point about this as well. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a valid thing that you have to work around. I, I'm not really fond of that, to be honest. I, I know there's reasons for that, but um, that does make it a little harder for a static lease if you don't know what the machine ID is going to be, because when you boot a live instance, it's going to have a different machine ID. Um, it's just not the greatest thing, but that's, yeah, that would take way too long to cover here. But if yeah. there's enough interest, I might do a video on it. If the cloud init video, if people feel like that didn't go deep enough. So. Yeah, it's, it's a confusing I, I was, I mean, I talked with you on it. That's why I remember it was in the cloud on it video. I remember the discussion around it, but it remember being a confusing topic. So that'll be a later yep. topic and out of scope for today's dev random. <laughs> yep. Out of scope. But what's not out of scope is the next idea. Um, so I've met, again, I've mentioned this before and some of the stuff I've mentioned before, but I just wanted to kind of get some syntax out there and some um, information around it. But the next idea is having a central config management slash work server. What I mean by this is a stationary machine. It could be a Raspberry Pi, it could be a virtual machine, could be a physical machine, doesn't matter. But if it's a physical machine, hopefully you don't pay too much because this would be a, a waste because this is kind of like a disposable kind of instance. But you have this central machine where you um, use you know, USSH into it. You could use Tmux, which is preferred and recommended. You have your session going. You can have a different session for every project. So if you're implementing Ansible, you have a session for that. Um, if you're updating your server configs, you have a session for that. And what's what's cool about this is that if let's just say you start your work on your desktop, but you know you want to relax, you still want to work on your servers, but you don't really want to be in your office chair anymore. You kind of want to be on the couch with your laptop. So um, you don't want to have to reopen all your apps and things, and it just gets really really kind of time consuming. But if you have everything in a Tmux session in a central available server, again, Raspberry Pi, VM, doesn't matter, then you could just use Tmux, restore your session, and you could take your workflow with you wherever you go. And this is actually even more powerful with Mosh, which is a wrapper over top of SSH. And what Mosh does is it automatically um, restores your connection. So imagine this, like normally you have Tmux running on your Raspberry Pi, you just open up your laptop, you SSH in to the Raspberry Pi, Tmux space A, that gets your session back. And that works great. But if it's Mosh, you eliminate most of those steps. You just open your laptop and your session is found and automatically attached. Like you do nothing but just like when you're connected to the network. So for example, let's just say, I don't know, you're configuring your servers, you take your laptop with you to work. So you close your lid, you go to work, and then you open your lid. It has your session there for that you were working on, but it's not connected anymore because you're not on the same network as your Raspberry Pi. You're not even at home. But then when you get back home and you reconnect to your Wi-Fi, it'll reconnect to that um, session because it notices now you're on the same network, so it just reconnects you to it. Now, the, the caveat with Mosh is that it was not made security first as far as I know. I don't know if it's been audited. Do not make it publicly available at all. Don't consider that. It's not for that. I don't think it was developed for that purpose. If you have something internal on your LAN that you can't get to from the outside, like you know, you can only get to from the inside. That's the way to do it. Because then when you get back home, you reconnect. Mosh is there. It uses UDP. I believe port 60,000 through 61,000 uh, uses a random port. So you might have to open something up for that to work. But once you get that going, and as long as you don't expose it externally, 
it just makes it so amazing paired with Tmux that your sessions just restore and you just continue working like nothing happened. Yeah. The, um, the, I, it took me a long time. I seen someone mention they still use screen screens, not bad. Um, once you get to use Tmux and all the split screen options, boy is just reattaching to a Tmux session. Uh, especially when you have updates you're running or something you're monitoring, you want to leave there. Um, and you're switching computers, you're moving around and, uh, that's still a thing I do, you know, between yeah. my main computer and going, I have, I have my laptop in my kitchen, <laughs> you know, got to stay connected while I eat. Uh, but being able to just jump back in and grab that session with even the Tmux just makes it so much more convenient. Um, and it's worth the time to learn it. Both me and Jay have videos. If you search our channels, uh, several videos on using mm -hmm. Tmux and talking about the keyboard shortcuts for it. Um, I'm a big fan of leaving them at default. I don't know if you are, Jay. I do that because that way, anytime I run into Tmux, I, I know where the keys are. Uh, I, I thought Jay was the, on the opposite program to the keys. You I, like Either way works. I really don't. Yeah, that's the, I can understand that. I really don't like the defaults in Tmux because I feel like it's hard to work with, in my opinion, because, you know, it's control B is the um, shortcut key to, to do a keyboard shortcut. You, you start it with control B or whatever the prefix is. That's what they call it. And then you, you, uh, type the command but holding control and then b you're stretching you know you have your pinky yeah. finger and control you're stretching your pointy pointer finger all the way over to the the b it's hard um i use control f and control j because your fingers are already there anyway and you can you could have a secondary prefix so that way if your left hand is pressing another button your right hand is free to do the prefix or your left hand is free to do the prefix regardless so it lets you do no more than two you can have a primary prefix and a secondary one and that makes it a lot easier for me. But also the default shortcuts where it's like um, prefix and then uh, think percent symbol and then double quote to do a um, a split. I do, I change it to V and H. H for horizontal, V for vertical. So prefix H, horizontal, prefix V, vertical. Um, it's super easy to remember. And then I map shift with the left and right arrows to the different tabs. And that seems to work a lot better um, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, what definitely doesn't work is um, it, it is harder. And I did it the hard way on my channel um, of just showing the actual commands. And what is I, I have on my muscle memory, but I think it's like percent splits one way and then the other. I have to look at it from muscle memory to do it. So I get completely Jay's reasoning for wanting to change into a more rational. I don't understand how they came up with the keys on there. Um, for a long time, when I learned Tmux. You can look up Tmux, Tmux cheat sheet. And there's a cheat sheet that has a list of the common commands you can use on there. So, yep. So that, yeah, that's, those are just a few Tmux tips where we're not, which we're not actually part of it, but I'm glad you brought that up because um, check our videos out. We will show you how to config that, uh, you know, change uh, Tmux to work for you. And it's so amazing the different types of things you could do with Tmux beyond the defaults. So don't just use the defaults and, th and then think that's it. Now, screen is fine, like you said. Um, at some point, they did they they did patch in um, splitting and doing panes though. I don't oh, really? remember when that happened. You could do that. I didn't know you could do that screen. Not every version, because I think it might depend on. And this was a long time ago, so maybe every distribution has it now. Okay. But last I looked, it kind of depended on if that patch was present, and it may or may not be. And I don't think it's quite the same. Like it's it's. I mean, it, the feature exists, but I think it's a little bit different. Not quite as good, but you know, screen is still perfectly valid.
Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with using it. Uh, the split screens just help me a lot when you're doing a lot of uh, testing. So I would actually sometimes split my screen and then each TMUX session would be a different server. And that way I'm doing, you know, iPer for different transfers and settings, um, file moving. I can look at them from both screens, especially when I've got to copy and paste things. They're just on one screen to be copied and pasted. By the way, turning on mouse control in Tmux, if you use my Tmux settings, um, which are available on GitHub, uh, I have all the mouse controls turned on, which adds some context menus for right click. They also allow you to click around to the different panes. Uh, so if you click on a specific pane, you can start in that particular pane. Yep. There's extra context that's actually added uh, when you're running in a terminal like that. It's one of the cool things I think about Tmux is that they have these context-aware menus uh, and right-click menus for doing and launching different things. So it can yep. get real extensive really quick. <laughs> it really can, and it's really fun. Um, another one, this is fairly simple, and I've mentioned this several times. I haven't really mentioned it. I don't think I've mentioned it by itself. I may have, but uh, worst case scenario, it's the second, third, or possibly 10th time I've mentioned this. Um, healthchecks.io yes. is awesome because the pro here's the problem. Let's just say you have some jobs running via cron. We all do, right? And you have to check them every now and then make sure they actually ran. Uh, maybe you have them send an email to let you know they've, they've run, so you, you expect that email. But with health, healthchecks.io, you can actually ping a very special URL, and that basically means it ran. Uh, that's all. You, you set up, um, I can't remember how many checks you can have by, by default for free, but basically if your script doesn't run and you have your check set that it, I don't know, maybe expects a response every seven days, it doesn't get one, then healthchecks.io will email you and let you know, hey, this didn't run. I didn't get anything for this. Um, which could be so great because that way you have something watching your cron jobs to make sure they've run. Now, a best practice here, don't make the healthchecks.io ping or I don't remember if it's a post or a curl, whatever. Don't put that at the beginning of the script, okay? Because the problem is that'll always work. The script will always start unless you really mess it up. Like, because then the check is pretty much invalid at that point. What you want to do is check the exit code of your script if it's um, exit code zero, meaning it's fine, do the health check, you know, submit that over there. Um, they'll get they'll get the message and it ran. Um, but if the exit code is not zero, then healthchecks.io gets nothing. And then you know something happened because something went wrong. And they could check the logs or whatever to make sure that it works. That is, I use the heck out of this because I have, I don't even know how many cron jobs I have. They're all managed by Ansible, but I still want to make sure that they've run. So I basically set them to seven days with a one day grace period. Like it could be a few hours after seven days, but definitely not more than eight. And then I'll start getting emails if something doesn't run. And it's saved me um, quite a few times. Yeah, it's kind of nice just having the simplicity of that. That's, uh, it's yeah. been around for a long time too. Yeah, I think I heard about it first last year, the or late the year before that. Um, so I highly recommend you check it out. And and by the way, none of these are sponsors, by the way, that we're mentioning. Um, oh yeah. yeah, it's just tools we use. <laughs> they're just there's tools. So I mean, use a free account. Like if you want an offer code, can't help you. <laughs> I don't know. Um, just go on the site or maybe Google for someone else's offer code. But um, you know, we just like these tools. Yeah. I mean, the alternative, and someone mentioned it, is you can send everything to logging servers and then grep those logging servers. And I have a whole video on Graylog, which has triggering options so you can send notifications. There's other ways to do it. Um, but we started with the simplest way. Certainly, the more complicated way is fun, but hence more complicated. <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, it 
even if you do have that set up, it doesn't hurt to have something else watching too, nope. you know, Who watches um, the watchers. <laughs> exactly. Or if you have like two things watching the watcher, that's fine. Um, if nothing else, then using that might be something you could recommend to someone else. If you like it, if they're looking for something like this. So there you go. Yep. The absolutely. Next, the next thing I recommend that everybody run every now and then, which is completely free is called shields up. And it's done by GRC, you know, yes. Steve Gibson. He's the security now person. I love that podcast. Um, Shields Up is great because you run it from within your network. So if you want to check your home network, be at home. You know, don't run this at a coffee shop. Okay, that's not what it's for. Run it from where you are or where, you, where the network is that you want to check. What it'll do is it'll actually tell you what ports the website was able to get a response from. So if you think, oh, well, I have this port open, but I don't have anything else open, then, okay, great. I'm glad you said that. But let's actually let's actually see this. Let's let's put your money where your mouth is. Well, run this test. And if you have any ports open that, um, you know, you didn't know about or something like that, then it'll show up and you'll know about it. That's really all it does. I mean, there's some other things that it does I won't get into. And GRC has some awesome other tools as well. But Shields Up is great because, again, it just shows you what ports are open so you can audit yourself, basically. It's not a thorough port scan or anything like that. So, you know, if you have port knocking, it probably won't find it, I don't think. But don't, like, over-exaggerate the value. I mean, it tells you that a port is super easy, low-hanging fruit. But if a port needs a little bit more work, it's not going to tell you about that because it's not a deep scan. But it will tell you, like, low-hanging fruit. You have port 22 open to the world. Oops. Um Maybe you should close that down. Yeah, there is. I tweeted out an interview with a CISO. So go all the way to the enterprise again. And it it was about them getting a very large company that got ransomware attacked. And they kind of came clean, talked about the whole process. Now, the technical details of this are not interesting. Oops, somebody left an RDP port open completely by accident. They knew better than to do this. A mistake was made. It was left open. Someone got in. And this is what you're trying to avoid is... I've had people where they just accidentally do something. They were testing something. They, whoops, I made a port that opened up on accident. Um, and it's because of an inexperience with the firewall or an oversight or some test that was being done that you just didn't realize would lead to these results. Whatever the reasoning, uh, and there's many of them, uh, just just check your ports. That's one of the really critical things to take a look at it. And I'll give kind of a second shout out is uh, Shodan is another option as well. Mm -hmm. They have a paid service, but it's a one time. This is a really, you, if you go to the pricing on Shodan, it's not in their initial pricing. Scroll down to the bottom and there's basically a almost like ideal for this audience here, like a, the home lab users. It's one time fee of $49 a year. They let you monitor a few different IP addresses. They give you a limited number of queries, but they give you access to some of the more uh, feature rich things you can do with Shodan. Now, one time $49, not per month, not per year, one time. And I think sometimes it even goes on sale below that uh, when they run uh, specials. I think Shodan has more than once on a Black Friday special, oddly enough. But the yep. important part is you can set up and throw your IP addresses in there. I believe you can do it via DNS. So if you have a dynamic IP address, you can. Uh, yeah. yeah, you can also uh, it gives you access to the Shodan script so you can do things like tell it when to query your system. You only get like 100 queries a month, but I don't think you need to check your own IPs more than a few times a month. Maybe you have a couple others you want to keep an eye on. Either way, I think this is a really interesting tool that allows you to even build some automation and have an alert sent to you if it goes, hey, look at what port we just discovered in your network. And you're like, 
huh, how'd that happen? <laughs> so uh, yep. it's just one of those little things to keep an eye on and keep check because even is large. And obviously the, the problem actually gets harder at some of these larger companies, despite people saying, oh, they should just close the ports and never open RDP. Yes, they can agree with you, but things happen. And this is why you have a layered approach to security and also why you have checks and balances to the things you do, such as just monitoring for open ports. Because it could also be a sign of you being infiltrated where all of a sudden ports are opening up and you're like, I don't remember opening any of those. Why are they all open now? And then you yep. could find out that's another indicator that someone's trying to exfiltrate data out of your network because they got access to your firewall and started opening up the ports that you didn't intend to open. These are just yeah. a few tools though that are help keep you a little bit safer uh, doing these and they're relatively easy to do. Shields up is free. Shodan's really inexpensive at a one-time fee of $49. Yeah, that's that. Those are all great points, and you know, just keep an eye on your networks and what ports you might have open. And even if you, you know, haven't opened a port, I mean, that doesn't mean that something else didn't. Like you said, especially installing a service or updating something. Who knows what could happen? Um, we 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 would love our systems to always have the same state always, but you know, eh. besides, if you know, everyone else is using, um, you know, Shodan against your network. So why not join them? Right. I mean, if they're using it against your network, you may as well do it yourself as well. So, yeah. So, so um, and using a VPN is a good solution. I've seen people asking, but you yep. have to have a portal for a VPN. Yes. Uh, but now you've created a choke point and VPNs, generally speaking, well, specifically, I should say OpenVPN and WireGuard, two really popular ones are well vetted protocols that have been both gone through a level of security auditing that I feel comfortable opening up them on my on the network uh, because it takes a really solid cryptographically secure transmission um, and challenge response in order to get in via those VPNs. So granted, yes, they are. If there was some major flaw found in your VPN, then there's a potential. But if you're using something like straight OpenVPN and straight WireGuard, they're pretty well vetted and within reason of security. Obviously, if you want to be the most secure, just unplug everything. <laughs> right. You just throw it all in your closet. You throw know. it all in the closet. Yeah. Uh, go somewhere where there's no internet, and you're a little safer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on a deserted island. Yeah, you probably nobody will hack you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but that's not reasonable. So back no. to reality. <laughs> well, I actually kind of would like to be on a remote island. Sometimes, um, sometimes. Yeah. So the next thing is, you know, back to the whole thing about you know watching the watcher. I use Status Cake. I don't want this to sound like a personal like recommendation for status cake because I feel like there's a bunch more that do the exact same thing. So I don't really care what it is that you use for this, this topic. If you do want to use this um, status cake was like the first one I found, which is literally the only reason why I chose it. It's been fine. I've had no reason to look elsewhere. You could get a free account. They have a paid account. Well, anyway, what it lets you do is just make sure that your site is actually up. So for example, if it's not getting a normal response via HTTP, uh, okay, I mean, your server can be up, but that doesn't mean your web server doesn't have a problem, right? So what this will help you do, oh, the website's down, you get an email. And I'm not sure if this is a paid feature or not, but if it takes too long to load, you can also get an email. Now, how valuable this is to you, eh, I mean, home lab, may, it may or may not be all that important. But if you do have a site that you want to get some kind of notification that it's down, um, it's one way to do it. And it doesn't have to be a status cake. I feel like there's like a bunch of these. I just can't remember the other names um, for these. Just go with whatever one's the cheapest and, that, and that's probably fine. 
Um, I think there's, I can't remember the name of it, but there's one that you can self-host as well. I just don't remember the name of that. I do. Um, but then again, it's another issue. You're self-hosting your watcher, which is watching your self-hosted stuff. I don't know how well, I, how good I feel about that unless it's in a different account. But yeah, it's just a quick mention, not a um, personal recommendation for Status Cake. I really don't care which one you use. We don't, they're not a sponsor. Like I said, none of these guys are, but um, that's just something to consider. So the one Jay mentioned, I threw both these links in in here, it, which is statuscake.com. And the other one that's free to host is phpservermonitor.org. The PHP server monitor something is really clever. Obviously, the, the, one of the challenges is if you're trying to monitor your own infrastructure with it, you need to do it so externally. Good news is we have an offer code from Linode. You can set up a Linode server for this. So, um, but PHP Server Monitor is a really clever tool. They've really done a nice job. It's got an interface. If you haven't looked at it in a while, it's been updated since uh, I remember when they changed the interface on it. They made it a lot prettier, I should say, and added a lot more features. But it has different ways of sending you notifications, um, several different outputs. It, it's a clever system for being able to monitor your infrastructure, set up a you know, like I said, a Linode instance, and make that your device. And then you can set up another PHP server monitor at your home to monitor your load instance. So one monitors the other and then you monitor all the different sites. And I do recommend throwing something in there uh, that's not part of yours. So you can make those determinations and correlation data of what was up or down. Did the, because if you ping something like 9.9.9, like quad nine, you can have that data and then compare it to your data. If both of them go offline at the same time, Odd coincidence, you're probably not on the same network as 9.9.9, but if you monitor multiple things at once, you see if they all go down at once or if just one particular thing. It's a way to create the correlation data with it, but it, it's easy to set up. Um, PHP Monitor is just pretty cool uh, software. Now, granted, you have to set up the full uh, stack. You have to have a web server and an uh, I believe it uses a database backend, but hey, you probably already have that. It's one more thing to add into the tool arsenal. If not, the free service that you get with uh, Status Cake lets you monitor a handful of, I think it's up to 10 monitors for free as of right now in March of 2022. Yep. Now, another tip, and and I'm just, I just remembered this off the top of my head. I actually didn't have this in my notes, but it's a very unusual tip, but it works so well. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, and the, the tip is going to sound, you know, not so great at first, but you, you just, just, you know, bear with me on this. And the tip is to use Twitter. Okay, what do you mean? Like, you start <laughs> tweeting about my home network, start posting? No, 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 no. So here's a funny story that happened to me, and then I'll tell you how this applies to tech. So it was, I think, 2012, I'm pretty sure, and I'm in Michigan for people that don't know, and the, I was working, you know, in person back then. And the building kind of vibrated a little bit. I'm like, what's going on? And I felt kind of queasy. I'm like, this is weird, a weird feeling. So I go on all the local news sites and there's nothing. Um, now, within seconds, though, I go on Twitter and I search for Detroit earthquake. And within seconds, it's just flooded with messages from um, people that are you know, experiencing the same thing. So I know it's not just me. The, the point of this is that it keeps happening to where Twitter is tweeting about things before the news sites, the tech news sites can even get a hold of it. So how does this apply to Home Lab? So if your, let's just say Comcast or whatever your connection is goes down, um, one easy way to know if it's you or, or, anyone, or everyone in your area is you just go to Twitter on your phone, obviously, because your internet doesn't work, and then search for latest tweets, Comcast, down. And if it's 
a bunch of other people are like a system-wide issue outside your home, then you'll see a bunch of people complaining about this. You'll know right then and there. Now, to take that a step further, um, you can follow Down Detector on Twitter as well, which is, you know, going to um, talk about these exact types of things. But it doesn't matter. I mean, if you're trying to go to your favorite gaming website or um, your internet provider isn't doesn't seem to be working right, you could pretty quickly find out if it's just you or if it's everyone by just going on Twitter and searching latest tweets or um, looking at something like Down Detector. There's also um, the website isup.me, I-S-U-P dot M as in Michael, E's in Edward, isup.me. And it you basically just type in a URL there and it'll tell you it's just you. It's fine. Or it's not just you. Other people are having a problem. That's another way that you could find out pretty quickly as well. Yeah, there's also uh, down for me or everyone or just me. <laughs> That's like dot com. <laughs> there's a few of them out there, but the um, one of the things I've seen. It, let's sort of come back to the Twitter. The challenge can be with some of these is obviously Twitter's full of garbage because any time right. you put a easy platform for people to post their thoughts, they do. Those thoughts are not always great. And when you uh, focus, though, on the tech aspect of Twitter, it's one of the reasons I use it a lot. Uh, I'm looking for things like is Office 365 down because that's a business tool that we provide to a lot of our clients you know, or manage, I should say, for them. And Microsoft allegedly provides it. Office 365, as the name almost implies, it would be up 365 days a year, but it is not. Mm. Anyone who uses it, we've jokingly, we knock it down each time and go to three. I think we got all the way down to 352 last year. I was going <laughs> to say, like, if it's down for 23 hours out of the day, technically it was still up that day at one point. Yeah. So <laughs> nonetheless, uh, it's been very helpful to figure out when something goes down. Uh, it was actually, when you use any services, you can sometimes see those trending hashtags for that name of the service and go, oh, okay, this service has gone down. You know, Amazon had a couple of major outages, not last year, but I think the year before, uh, where they were relatively broad. And, you know, so did Facebook. Facebook became pretty infamous for their outage there. And this becomes kind of a question. You just want to know, is it a problem with my network? Do I have a DNS problem? Or is there a problem that's beyond me that I can just tell people or, you know, and sometimes your support, if you're a home lab, is the people within your uh, house going, hey, dad, the Internet's not working. Well, I don't know. I'm online. Right. Well, no, yeah. the thing you're trying to do isn't working. It's like when I remember when the... Um, one of the Christmases when I think was it the PlayStation or the Nintendo network that went down for Christmas. So <laughs> I think that's happened a few times on both, but then there was also the famous Google outage. I can't remember what year this was. And, and literally everyone's like, the internet's down, the internet's down. No, Google's down. The internet's fine. It's just Google. Everything else is fine. But to them, you know, it's their start page. So their start page doesn't load. They don't really know the difference between that and, uh, you know, a website being down or their connection having a problem. Um, so for someone who's not tech savvy, that can be a very confusing uh, situation to walk through. Yeah. So ha having that little bit of extra knowledge, it's a place to get the knowledge. Uh, and Twitter's pretty, uh, of the social media companies, relatively in not too invasive. They don't ask a lot of questions about you to set up an account. Um, so just to have an account there, just to monitor a few things and follow like down detector. It also means when you go to Twitter, you won't be distracted by whatever dumb things people are saying on Twitter, which I always have to ignore. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just follow the good stuff. There, there's still a use case for it. I know it sounds odd, like Jay said, but he's not wrong. <laughs> so another thing I wanted to chat about is, um, you know, when it comes to your data, and when I mean data, I'm not talking about your picture collection. Although, yeah, that's important. But 
um, app data, right? You're running a Linux mm. server or a container and you have an app running on that container or VM. And, you know, if that VM goes down, the data goes down. Everything's in, you know, self-contained in that VM. If you can get away from that, if your, you know, infrastructure is good enough to where you have like extra RAM and cores and things, um, splitting out those services is better. If you have like a, you know, true NAS or, or Synology or something like that, some kind of NAS solution, you could do this. So the idea is you make the VM or container disposable and technically containers are already disposable. So I'm not going to talk so much about that part of it, but it's, it's essentially an idea like treating a VM like a container. So let's just say you have an app and it's running inside your virtual machine. And if you, if you want to set it up to where your data is not there to where it's disposable, um, just think about this uh, scenario, for example, your database server could be external. The app directory where the app is installed could be a, an NFS mount. The app data could be an NFS mount. So for example, if it's a web server, you could have var www HTML mounted via NFS to your storage server. Obviously you have to have a decent network for this because when you start doing this like crazy and you have just one gigabit, you can start to really see some problems here. But this is like a solution that's not going to be for everyone. But the idea is um, to do this like you would at a company. Um, you know, someone said that in our chat room, actually. I, I think it was Luke who mentioned that even if you don't really have much of a use case, doing it the right way is great because you get used to that and you do it the right way in the your working environment at work too. So think about it like this. If your instance gets hosed for whatever reason, you just delete it, um, you know, bring it up via a backup. And if it doesn't have any data because it's using an external database server, the app directory and config directories are all mounted, then there's nothing that you care to lose on that VM. Obviously, you have to have your NFS uh, server backed up. But the idea is, is that the VM is disposable. At that point, you're treating it like a container because it's mounting everything outside. And the VM itself, uh, you know, if it, let's just say it gets hosed with malware or something, I mean, don't even, you don't even want to clean it. I never recommend cleaning malware because you never know if it can come back. Just delete the whole instance yep. and recreate it. And if your data is not even on the instance anyway, then it makes it that much easier because the instance is completely disposable. Worst case scenario, if um, you have to run like apt upgrade or something when you bring it back online, that's fine. But aside from that, it's if you can achieve it, it's best to treat your VMs as disposable whenever you can. And if you have the data mounted on your NFS, you could have like version, like under version control, like the snapshots and, and such on your um, NAS solution. So if you have a config that goes wonky and you want to go back, you could just revert it and right there in your NAS and you're done. Yeah, I brought this up when I was discussing the migration, if you wanted to go this way from TrueNAS Core to TrueNAS Scale, because people are saying, well, what happens to these FreeBSD IO cage containers slash jails versus the Docker and Debian mix that's over in TrueNAS Scale? And I'm like, honestly, you know, for example, use NextCloud. NextCloud is a great product. You have your data, hopefully, separated, though, from the container. That just means delete the container, delete the jail in your TrueNAS core. No big deal. Your data should be stored somewhere on one of the data sets. Mm -hmm. Do the migration, rebuild, reattach, done. It's not that big of a deal provided. I mean, the nuances are going to be different because you're using IO cage in one and that plugin system in core versus uh, Docker. So there's a little bit of different interface to get them set up. But honestly, it shouldn't really matter. You'll just reattach your data, reattach a data store. I know a lot of people don't do this. They load these different plugins and then store the data within the plugins. And that's where uh, you can find yourself a little bit of trouble. So you want to make sure you've separated 
compute and data, essentially. This is how it's done in the larger enterprises. And this makes it a lot easier for you to migrate back and forth between products once you have a good understanding of that. Yep. Absolutely. And so a couple more things I'm, I'm going to go over fairly quickly because um, I'm coming up on time on yeah. my end here. So, um, and these are all about, you know, mainly company def defaults, but I really think you should get into the habit of this. And for, for example, use partitions wisely. I think every Linux user has heard if they've been using, you know, Linux for a week to put their home directory on another partition. And that's true because, you know, that goes without saying, if you've been using Linux a week, you know, because someone's probably mentioned that to you. But you could reinstall your Linux distribution as long as you don't format slash home and you have your data. Um, that's great. But when it comes to servers, I feel like you should be doing that as well. And I'll even go as far as to say var log should also be on another partition. And the reason for that is especially at companies, I've seen this all the time, right? You have someone who, let's just, well, actually a server, let's just say you have um, 20 gigabytes free, but this isn't a storage server. That's way more storage than you'll ever need because this server might be um, serving something kind of you know small. And then somebody wants to work on that server. So they copy a tarball to their home directory that takes up the entire space, right? The whole system comes crashing down. Um, it's a lot better when you have these directories that could get full in a different partition because then the server isn't going to get full. So for example, if um, you know you have everything in one file system and somebody fills up slash home, well, that's on the same file system. There's no space on the entirety of the server. It can't even log anymore at this point. And it's probably going to crash. It's probably just going to come crashing down. Um, but if you know slash home is on a different partition, it's not going to fill up the same partition that var log is using. And if var log is on a different partition, even better, because then if an, an app you know logs like crazy excessively, and this happens, we're just logs the same message over and over again, like 10 times a second. And the next thing you know, your file system is full. Um, that's less likely to happen if it's on another partition. You can't always predict which directories are going to get full. But I would I would say slash home um, absolutely is a very common one. Var log is also common when things get out of control. If you have a mail server, which I'm not going to talk about that because you know that's not something that I recommend. But if you do have a mail server that you maintain, you probably don't want those mail files to be on the main file system either. Because if there's a issue sending and it gets queued up, it's just going to fill up the file system. So um, I'll also pair this with LVM, Logical Volume Manager. I have a whole video on this. Definitely use that. I recommend using LVM on everything, always. Yes. At work, at home, doesn't matter. It gives you the ability to resize file systems on the fly. It gives you the ability for snapshots. And worst case scenario, if you never use LVM, it's not going to hurt you to have it implemented. But when you do have a use case for LVM or something that LVM helps you with, then you, you will be thankful that you set up LVM. So I do um, LVM on everything. I might not use it that much in practice, but whenever I do use it, I'm thankful that I, I've set that up. So I would just get in the habit of LVM, all the things. And check out my video about this topic if you want to learn more about what LVM is and why you might want to use it. The video just tells you everything you need to know, so there's probably nothing here that I could say that's not said there. Um, but LVM is great and, and set up different partitions. Yeah, definitely handy when you got to do some of those things. Uh, do we got time for any more tools, Jay, or are we at the end of the show here? We're pretty much at the end. I, I do have a few more, but I will save this because I think this is something that I'd like to do again. And yes. um, and we, we were talking before the show started that um, I think the problem is things become muscle memory that I do on a daily basis. I think this is true for others as well. 
So I have to kind of recondition my thought process, all these little things I do so quickly. Um, I, we should probably talk about it on the show because it's beneficial for other people. So I'm going to pay special attention to things that I do regularly, services that I use, apps, tools, and things like that, and then come back with an even greater um, Dev Random episode for next time. Yeah, there's just so many fun little networking tools and things like that. And that's one of them we might do is just uh, a whole dedicated one to different tools you can use, like IP Traff and some of those. I are we fun. did do that already, didn't we? I think we did a bunch of fun networking tools, but I have to go over the list in that one to see which ones we didn't mention because I know we didn't get to all of them. That's that's, that's the thing. True. I think that one might be one we mentioned, and I can't remember if we mentioned LNAV a lot. So for Log Navigator. But man, I love yeah. that tool. LNAV. That good. Yes, I've got a whole video good. on LNAV and I, I, it's still one of my favorite tools for log navigation because it's just it's so handy, supports really good searching and grepping functions and it, it'll do live loading of your logs. Combine it with Tmux and watch or not. You can do it where you can uh, put multiple log logs together at once or open up multiple Tmux screens, run LNAV and different Tmux streams, watch two different log streams, and then run the commands and see the output, like when you're troubleshooting a crazy storage problem. Um, I've literally used yep. it for some weird issues before, and it's just really helpful because it can do highlighting and stuff like that. And, and by the way, logging is something I almost always ask for. For those of you that head over to my forums, um, you'll notice there's a lot of replies that sometimes get dead air. I ask people for the logs to what led up to their events. And they go, oh. And sometimes there's not a reply because they'll say, oh, I looked at the logs and solved it because the error message was literally in the log. I'm like, yes. <laughs> so, Especially yeah. with SSH, you can check the off log or whatever your distro uses yes. for that or bar log secure, something yeah. like that. In me and yep. Jay, when we were talking about CrowdSec, how did I know there was a problem with CrowdSec without talking to CrowdSec and figuring out why it wasn't working? It said port in use. It was written in the logs. Easy enough. Port's in use. Something must yeah. be using that port. So Yeah, maybe the port's it. in use. I don't know. Could be. Yeah. It says that. <laughs> yeah, it says that, which is weird because it. I looked to see if a port was in use. It wasn't, but then we turned out, as me and Jay discovered, it was by another service, even though it wasn't showing up at the first way I looked at it. But either way, the log told me the answer. This is so much of the troubleshooting mm -hmm. and what keeps me from posting in the forums as much, so to speak, and asking a lot of questions that the noobs ask is just learning how to log. So it's, it allows you to answer better, ask better questions. And also those logs are frequently as people who do help a lot of people and noobs out. Um, I'm always, I'm never not kind to them. I'm always asking for logs. So that's uh, spend yep. some time thinking about that. Uh, when you do a post, get in, just don't dump the whole logs, dump the part you think is relevant. Do, do some yeah. quick Google searching too um, on those log files. Just a little helpful tips though, uh, in general, when you're posting things on Reddit or any forums, not just mine, any forums, having that little bit of extra context and it, it just lets me go oh i've seen this before it says you have a bad cipher you know i've seen that with people troubleshooting open vpn for example so that's that yep absolutely so highly recommended um you know definitely uh, take advantage of logging it's really great it's there for a reason it's not there to just fill up your hard drive for no reason it has actual value so definitely take a look at it mm -hmm. yeah and, and frequently you can crank the logging level up a little higher sometimes if it's not providing what you're looking for so yes yep. All right. All right. Well, awesome. And I, I see someone post a D, D, do you say a D message? D M E S G. Oh, I, I say it. It. Okay. I say it that yeah. way too. See, I type these things all the time. I don't know how they're pronounced. This I don't, I don't want to, even if it is, I don't want to say Demesg. Demesg. Yes. Demesg. It's abbreviated. Journal control. Um, yeah. Definitely solve many problems just because they'll, they'll have the outputs on there. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. It was great having you and looking forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.